This is Strange Assembly episode 321, Adventures in Rokugan. Adventures in Rokugan takes the classic world of Legend of the Five Rings and brings it to the fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons. Strange Assembly has a long, long history with both Legend of the Five Rings and Dungeons and Dragons, so we're pretty excited to see this. There are two reviews of this. There's another one that is for enfranchised Legend of the Five Rings players. This review is for someone who does not have experience with Legend of the Five Rings or Rokugan, but is coming to the world from Dungeons and Dragons. D&D is more popular now than it has ever been, and for the second time after 3rd edition, we're seeing a really significant quantity of third-party content being built on the bones of Dungeons & Dragons mechanics. It seems to be going a lot better this time around, I think. D&D 3rd Edition, when they did the OGL, it seemed to spawn a relative lot of low-quality supplements that were very much still in the standard fantasy wheelhouse. The 5e explosion, however, seems to have attracted a greater number of high-quality worlds built on the 5e mechanics but extending past traditional D&D-style fantasy. And that has included 5e versions of some venerable role-playing games that had previously existed only using their own bespoke mechanics. Joining that last group is Adventures in Rokugan. Japanese-inspired Rokugan has been at the heart of the Legend of the Five Rings role-playing game for 25 years, going through five editions of its own, with the first four being variations on the roll and keep system, and the fifth being a complete overhaul when Fantasy Flight Games acquired the setting. So what is that setting? Rokugan, also known as the Emerald Empire, has lasted through a thousand years, including a variety of semi-catastrophes. Civil wars, attempted usurpations, a mad emperor, blood sorcery, legions of the risen dead, that sort of thing. Within Rokugan, the great clans play their roles and vie for political influence, but the empire is also populated with minor clans, ronin, commoners, and outsiders both natural and supernatural. Southwest of Rokugan is the Shadowlands, a realm of taint and evil whose existence dates to the mystical founding of the empire. Around the Emerald Empire are peoples inspired by other parts of Asia, and citizens from these lands may find themselves adventuring in Rokugan as well. Metaphorically, and perhaps literally, above, below, and around Rokugan are cosmological realms, and residents of these realms might join the party too. Now, new threats to the Empire are emerging, and it will be up to heroes, like the player characters, to determine whether Rokugan is able to make it into its next millennium. Each of the human great clans was founded by a divine kami who literally fell to earth from the heavens. The kami were the children of Lord Moon and Lady Sun. Lord Moon was jealous of his children and began consuming them. The youngest, Hante, ultimately fought his father, sliced open his belly, and released his siblings, but sending them falling out of the heavens and down to Rokugan. There, the Kami created civilization and came to lead tribes of humans who were formed where the tears of Lady Sun mixed with the blood of Lord Moon. The Kami held a tournament to resolve who would rule, although the Dragon Clan Kami Tagashi chose not to compete. 
The winner, Hante, founded the empire. But one of their siblings, Fu Lang, did not fall with the other kami. Instead, he fell alone. And instead of landing in the mortal realm, he tore through the mortal realm and into the hellish lower realms. This breach in reality resulted in the creation of the Shadowlands. Fu Lang eventually led demonic legions into Rokugan and was defeated by mortals known as the Seven Thunders, who were led by the little teacher Shinsei. This is an entirely human-centric mythology, which is known to be false because both human and non-human civilizations predated the Emerald Empire. Nonetheless, it is the founding mythology of Rokugan. So that's Rokugan. What is different about adventures in Rokugan? So adventures in Rokugan may use the 5e mechanics, but is not simply a magical fantasy game that happens to have feudal samurai instead of feudal knights. Sure, there are easy surface differences to pick out. There's a different selection of armor, shields are rare, threats are more likely to be human, and when they're supernatural, they generally aren't gelatinous cubes or displacer beasts. But the important differences are deeper. There is more of a spiritual significance to the world. For all that standard Dungeons & Dragons technically has things like walking conduits to the gods walking around, that often isn't given much significance in typical play. Whether it's a cleric, or a wizard, or a bard, it's ultimately just another spell being slung. If Tiamat shows up, she's just a really, really powerful boss monster to cap off the end of the campaign. Adventures in Rokugan approaches this differently. It's not just the view that the world is suffused with spirits. It's that this matters to the characters. Ritualists must seek the favor of the spirits to power their invocations. It's not just that ancestors are venerated in theory. It's that this matters. Characters don't loot the ancestral heirlooms, aka magic items, of their defeated foes. Indeed, a respectful character would be expected to return such a prized possession to the family of the deceased. Instead, the characters must perform great deeds to awaken the spirits in the weapons that they have inherited from their own grandparents. The supernatural threats are not just another sort of monster. They might threaten a character's very soul. And the other realms of Rokugan's cosmology are not theoretical or the subject of lighthearted space adventures. They are considered in daily life, as exemplified by player characters who may hail from those realms. So, the typical character in Adventures in Rokugan is a human, human species, and a member of one of the families of a great clan, which then mechanically becomes the character's background. The determined crab hold the line against the Shadowlands. The artistic crane set the standards for Rokugani culture. The enigmatic dragon bide their time in their isolated mountains, occasionally emerging and intervening for inscrutable reasons. The vast lion provides soldiers for the empire. The spiritual phoenix are masters of elemental power. The sinister scorpion achieve their goals and the empire's no matter the cost. And the well-traveled unicorn link Rokugan to the rest of the world. Within each of these clans are families that focus on martial combat, diplomatic graces, spiritual harmony, or more esoteric roles. The siege engineers of the crab, the tattooed order within the dragon, the lion who can call forth the spirits of their ancestors, or the unicorn who harness the power of name magic. 
Just those is already over 35 backgrounds, and each of them says a lot more about where this character comes from than just being, I don't know, an outlander. Even human characters native to Rokugan aren't limited to these options. There are imperial family members and a dozen minor clans, each with their own background. Again, saying something meaningful about where this character came from, who they are perceived to be in society. And don't worry, there are more generic backgrounds for characters who are from Rokugan but not members of the samurai class. Humans from outside of Rokugan might have journeyed from the Ivory Kingdoms, the Camarist Caliphate, the Great Plains of Wind and Stone, the Kingdom of Clouds, Sebuksen, or various islands. Each of these is not a one-note location. Instead, each has a couple of distinctive backgrounds, or again, the option just to use a generic background if you so choose. But what if a character isn't human? While Rokugan is human-dominated, humans are not the only player character options for adventures in Rokugan. Three of the six non-human options are mortal creatures of Ningendo. The Naga, the Nizumi, and the Tengu. The Naga are half-serpent in appearance, coming from either the Ivory Kingdoms or from the Shinnaman Forest within Rokugan, where a contingent of Naga has been sleeping for hundreds of years and is only now beginning to awaken. Mechanically, Naga are fast and have a swim speed, with multiple sensory bonuses based on smell, thermal sight, and a lesser sort of tremor sense. Nizumi, sometimes known as ratlings, are rat-like humanoids. The ancient civilization of the Nizumi was destroyed when Fulang fell into and through the mortal realms. Nizumi, who are immune to the effects of the Shadowlands, may live there, or they may reside in the outskirts of the Shinnaman Forest. The Nizumi are very, very short-lived, and this colors their perspective. So they venerate their tribe's rememberers, sages who have access to the realm of dreams to keep the past alive for modern Nizumi. Tengu are typically depicted as raven folk in fantasy sources. In Adventures in Rokugan, they can have an appearance similar to any sort of bird. They are often seen as messengers of the gods, and a few of them actually are, but mostly they are just people. Mechanically, Tengu get very little other than the ability to glide, which may be disappointing in light of other 5e species from official sources who just get flat-out fly speeds. Finally, there are a trio of species representative of those other realms above, beside, and below Rokugan. Spectres, Mizoku, and Yokai. Okay, I mean, I might be stretching a little bit for my analogy here with the Spectres. They are ancestors who are supposed to have gone on to Yomi, or maybe some other less pleasant afterlife, but instead stuck around to deal with unfinished business. I will note, they're called Spectres. They have nothing whatsoever thematically to do, or mechanically to do with the typical Spectre monster in D&D. Under normal circumstances, a specter appears to be a typical human, but they have the ability to disperse their corporeal form as needed. This dispersal is the specter's only mechanical benefit, allowing some very limited once-per-short-rest damage resistance or walking through walls, as long as those walls are less than an inch thick. 
From beside Rokugen are the animal yokai, various spirits who have an animalistic appearance in Senkyo, the enchanted realm. The other realm beside is Yumido, the realm of dreams, which I mentioned earlier. Yokai tend to take on a human appearance in the mortal realms, although they can switch back and forth between the two forms. There are three types of animal yokai presented in Adventures in Rokugen. Kitsune, foxes. Komori, bats. And Kuwasos, otters. In addition to the ability to shift into their true form and fly, swim, or whatever it is a fox can do, each animal yokai can perform one specialized invocation per day. We'll talk a little bit more about invocations when we get to ritualists. From below are the Mizoku, underlings of the fortune of death. Demonic in appearance, but primarily celestial bureaucrats who help judge and process the dead. So they are primarily living in the realm of waiting, rather than something more sinister like the realm of the hungry dead or the realm of slaughter. But sometimes Mizoku are sent to the mortal realm where they appear almost entirely human, except for a single startling feature. I can't help but think of their presence as a playable species as Rokugan's answer to the popularity of tieflings. Mechanically, the Mizoku gain dark vision and the ability to, once today, transform into their true form for a few rounds, gaining various bonuses that vary from one Mizoku to another. Note that all of these species have the flexible attribute boosts like those introduced in Monsters of the Multiverse, but several of them are reduced to only two plus one boosts instead of three. Mechanically, none of the new species match up with the power level of the human's free feet or plus one to everything bonus, and even the humans are powered down because losing the extra attribute bonuses only gets them the feet instead of a feat and a skill proficiency. This overall power down isn't a big deal, because everyone is still mostly balanced, well, maybe not the humans, but I did find it a surprising move just because it makes the options seem less exciting for players like possibly you listening to this, who are coming from normal 5e, where you're going to get a little bit more out of your species. But of course, in addition to two species, everyone in D&D has to choose a class, and Adventures in Rokugan has an entirely new set of seven character classes. They are formally compatible with the standard 5e classes. The different resource systems used for some of these classes means that you might not actually want to try to combine them willy-nilly with other stuff, so I'm just going to be evaluating them in relation to each other. The seven new character classes are the Bushi, Duelist, Courtier, Shinobi, Ritualist, Pilgrim, and Acolyte. Bushi and duelists are your straight-up warriors. Duelists are better one-on-one, including in literal duels, while Bushi are better against groups, so they get more hit points, for example. Both classes use focus points to power martial techniques, and they regain those focus points and get other benefits through the use of different stances during combat. Some of the distinction between the classes can be seen in the default everyone-has-it technique for each class. The Bushi's technique reduces incoming damage, while the Duelist's technique increases outgoing damage. Each class has multiple archetypes, of course. The Bushi's archetypes represent three levels of aggression. On one side, the Vanguard gets more attacks when faced with multiple foes, 
while on the other end of the spectrum, the Protector gains access to the heaviest of armor. This is the only class or archetype that does so in Adventures in Rokugan. None of the other base classes have more than medium armor proficiency. In between these two is the Samurai Arms Master, who gains access to the lower end heavy armor, which is known as lacquered armor, and gets some more flexible bonuses like more skill proficiencies and better unarmed strikes. Duelists can be Blade Masters, who heavily focus on Rokugan's traditional single-weapon, single-strike dueling style. Adepts, who are two-weapon fighters with greater flexibility, or Death Dancers, who extensively employ intimidation. Ritualists are the closest thing to a traditional magic user in Adventures in Rokugan, and they aren't really all that close to a traditional D&D magic user. And note that despite the name, they do not use ritual magic as that term is used in your D&D player's handbook. Ritualists are able to call upon the spirits in the world around them, using invocations to ask those spirits to perform particular tasks, spending favor in the process. The class is, however, fairly limited by the low number of favor points that it gets each day, and ends up feeling reliant on the small number of zero-cost invocations. While the scope of possible focuses for the ritualist is broad, depending on the spiritual tradition the character comes from, I suspect that in practice, ritualists will feel like warlocks repeatedly using the one good damage-dealing invocation that doesn't cost favor. The three ritualist archetypes are the elementalist, who cares more about the element of their invocations, naturally, the medium, who connects with ancestors, and the artisan. There are a lot of sub-archetypes within the artisan. Alchemy, charms, illusions, wards, and more. Artisans can also help awaken the spirits within items, such as that sword the Bushi used to slay a mighty foe. But I'd anticipate that GM is probably going to make NPCs available for that anyway. Shinobi are these sneaky Rokugani characters, although it would be a mistake to think of them as Rokugani rogues. They do sneaky in a much different way. Basically ninja, they get a lot of use out of ninja tools, caltrops, smoke screens, poison, and the like. I think of the saboteur archetype as really the standard. There is also an infiltrator archetype that focuses instead on being socially sneaky. And then there's the courtier class. The existence of the courtier class is emblematic of the traditional importance of social navigation in Rokugan. The courtier's abilities rely on the use of intrigue dice to fuel rhetorical flourishes. The one that everyone gets lets the courtier increase another character's armor class or saving throws by the roll of one of those dice as a reaction. The one free repeat-use power that the courtier gets is that when they attack, they grant the next character who hits that target a damage bonus equal to the courtier's proficiency bonus, so plus two to start. Unfortunately, given the thematic importance of the courtier, that's really it for them in combat. It's not that they don't have combat abilities. Plenty of rhetorical flourishes are combat-focused. It's just that they all cost intrigue dice, and the courtier doesn't get many intrigue dice, and there isn't a good way for them to regain intrigue dice short of a long rest. With bad armor class and only simple weapon proficiencies, 
Courtiers are going to spend a lot of time hanging back and shooting crummy ranged weapons. They feel mechanically kind of like a depowered bard, which is a shame, because the courtier is thematically really important. And the two courtier archetypes are the diplomat and the investigator who, you know, focus on finding out different sorts of things. There are two more classes. There's the pilgrim, who will most commonly be a wandering member of the Brotherhood of Shinsei, an order of monks who stand outside of Rokugan's usually samurai-dominated social structure. They probably would have just been called monks, but it turns out that class name is already taken. The pilgrim has two primary mechanical shticks. First, they use their hit dice to fuel powers. Much like the ritualist and the courtier, this means that they rely a bit too much on a limited resource that they don't have a good way to renew, although they don't rely on it nearly as much as those classes do. This is especially noteworthy because there is no Rokugani equivalent of a cleric throwing healing spells all over the place. The basic version of the basic healing spell just lets the target immediately use their hit dice to regain their hit points. But second, and probably more importantly, the pilgrims track their yin-yang balance. By default, being on the yang side of things makes attacking stronger, while the yin side makes healing better. But the appropriate yin or yang state is also required to enter the pilgrims' forms of enlightenment, which come with significant bonuses, or to use externalizations, which allow the pilgrim to project power outside of themselves. The three pilgrim archetypes align the character in different ways on the yin-yang scale. Redemption is yin-aligned, justice is yang-aligned, and harmony is balanced. Finally, there is the acolyte, which is conceptually the narrowest of the classes. While the other classes represent significant chunks of Rokugani society, acolyte represents two specific groups the tattooed Tagashi Order of the Dragon Clan, or the tiny number of members of the Scorpion Clan who have been marked with shadow brands. Shadow brands are a sign of the primordial nothing from which the universe sprang and which now seeks the unmaking of what it created. The base acolyte can gain additional inspiration and has different ways to spend it. It really changes kind of conceptually what inspiration is. But much of the class is found in the two archetypes. The Acolyte of Tagashi gains major and minor tattoos, each with their own magical power. And the Acolyte of Shadows gains shadow brands, which unsurprisingly also each have their own magical power. So let's bring it all together. Rokugan is a richly developed setting. And if you play adventures in Rokugan, going over the character background options is one of the best ways of seeing that. Backgrounds are way more important in Adventures of Rokugan than they are in standard 5e D&D. I think a lot of players just pick D&D backgrounds for the proficiencies, but even if what you're looking for is the flavor, the flavor is fairly generic. Backgrounds here are kind of the opposite of that. Looking over each background says something about the role of that clan and that family in the Empire. There are no mechanical restrictions in Adventures of Rokugan, but players who want to lean in to what's typical for members of a certain clan or family will find detailed suggestions on how to embody that concept mechanically, what classes might be used, what options in those classes might be chosen, and even what feats. 
most of the feats are categorized by clan, although there isn't a hard mechanical gate on them. Rokugan is a setting with a real sense of place, and I think you get the most out of it when you are leaning into that sense of place, even where the rules permit you to combine your own personal hodgepodge of mechanical options. Of course, there's more to adventures in Rokugan than I can readily talk about here. There are dozens of feats, plus things like all the martial techniques and invocations that power some of the classes. There's gear specific to the setting, like an entirely different array of armor options, rules on awakening characters' items, a significant gazetteer with maps, NPC stat blocks, and an introductory adventure. I will note that if you like adventures in Rokugan, you might want to pick up some of the more recent non- 5e Legend of the Five Rings supplements, which have full poster versions of some of the regional maps and the maps that are used in the adventure in this book. I will admit to being a biased source when I'm coming to conclusions on this book. I've been playing Legend of the Five Rings in various versions for more than two decades. I've also been playing D&D in various versions for more than two decades. So I'm inherently inclined to think that it's cool to see the chance for this setting to ride the 5e wave and get into the hands of new players. Rokugan is just so packed full of cool aspects to explore, with every clan and family and species highlighting a different nifty element of the empire, and then the way that those elements interrelate to each other to build this bigger tapestry. I like that there's a built-in way to make getting more powerful gear about telling an epic story instead of just finding a new fancy thing and throwing out your old one. My main hesitancy about adventures in Rokugan is power level. The mechanics of the species are underwhelming. This mostly isn't a balance issue, although some species are more underwhelming than others. But it does make the choice of species less exciting than it might otherwise be, and I would like to see people coming into Rokugan and getting excited. More concerning is the power variance in the classes, with key Rokugani concepts like the courtier and ritualist seemingly saddled with subpar power sets, while frontline combatants have strong class options. Sure, you can explore Rokugan and just stab bad guys in the face, but the full experience of the setting needs to involve trips to court, nefarious plots to unravel, and the wonders of an animated natural world. I might even consider nudging these classes up a bit to make them more compelling picks. But despite that, ultimately, I love Rokugan, and I would suggest checking out Adventures in Rokugan to any 5e player who's looking for something that is still feudal fantasy, but from a really different perspective, or anyone who's just interested in a richly developed setting that has been exploring for decades the wider array of concepts like horror and mysteries, and social investigation that Dungeons & Dragons has only been warming up to for the last few years. You've been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to this podcast there in the Apple Podcasts app, through Amazon's Alexa, Google Play, whatever podcatching service you use, we should be there. If you use a podcatching service and you don't see Strange Assembly there, please let me know. I would like to fix that situation. You can reach me at chris at strangeassembly.com. You can also reach out at the usual social media, 
We are at Strange Assembly on Twitter and Instagram, and we're also Facebook.com slash Strange Assembly. Until then, I'm Chris Stevenson. This is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.